I'm Beatrice Collier. And I'm Georgina Wolfe. And this is the Pupillage Podcast, brought to you by Middle Temple and us, your hosts. It's a podcast for anyone considering a career as a barrister, from students at school, university, or on the law conversion or bar course. It's for those contemplating a career change later in life and wondering what it might entail. And it's for the army of pupillage applicants out there, from those applying for pupillage for the first time to the battle-weary, giving it just one last go. We know that at times the search for pupillage can seem daunting, so in each episode we talk to junior barristers, fresh from their own pupillages, members of pupillage committees, senior barristers, QCs, judges, masters of the bench and lots of other guests and ask them for their advice, what to do, what to avoid and how to succeed. There are many, many different areas of practice. We quickly found that there were far too many for us to cover in this season and definitely too many to squeeze into a single episode. So today we're giving you two episodes. As a barrister, it's often said that you don't choose your practice area, your practice chooses you. But when you're taking your first steps towards a career at the bar, how do you know which area of law to choose? Different practices can mean entirely different lifestyles. Do you want to be in court every day, enjoying the excitement of advocacy? Or would you prefer to be in chambers, working through some complex legislation? In this episode about practice areas, we spoke to a range of guests about practice at the civil, public and commercial bar and heard about the differences between these practice areas. We kicked off with Julia Horner, Chambers Director at Blackstone Chambers, a large and varied civil set here in Middle Temple. So welcome, Julia Horner, to the Pupillage podcast. Thank you very much indeed for coming to speak to us. Could you start by telling our listeners who you are and what you do? My name is Julia Horner and I am the Chambers Director at Blackstone Chambers, where I've been for more years than I care to think about. We, we weren't pressed. <laughs> <laughs> and, and Blackstone is a chambers that has a number of different practice areas. You aren't just a criminal set or just a family set. You're in fact a, a civil, mostly civil and commercial chambers, but you do a huge array of different practice areas. Is that right? Yes, we're totally based on the civil side. Um, we don't do any crime as such. Occasionally you might touch some white-collar crime, but that's only as a peripheral to other work. It's not because we specialise in it at all. The principal areas are commercial, public law, employment, public international and EU. I mean, those are the four main areas. When, when uh, thinking about our listeners who are, are, will have done in the main their academic stage or in the process of doing their academic stage, it, it, when they're thinking about which area of practice to choose, it can be quite difficult, I think, for people to understand what a particular area is, is like in practice rather, as opposed to how it is to study. Have you got any advice on how to find out, well, what, what's this really like for a barrister practising in, for example, commercial law? Unfortunately, there is very little substitute for doing mini pupillages, and I know that they're being addressed in a different section. But that is the way to find out about life at the bar. Um, in my view, life at the bar is actually a lifestyle choice. Um, it's not just the particular academic expertise you have, it's the sort of life you want to follow. And if you work in something like crime and the criminal section, you're going to be doing a huge amount of travelling, uh, probably not returning to chambers very often. A lot of the work is done now electronically, papers are sent through electronically, and you travel all over the country. Uh, certainly on your own circuit. On the civil side, 
particularly in the areas that we operate in, you don't travel in the same way. Uh, a lot of the work is based in London and um, quite a lot of it in the High Court, some of it in other tribunals. And um, so it means that, in fact, your whole lifestyle is different. In addition, you have a different approach to your practice, depending on whether it is a commercial-type practice or maybe a public law practice. And those split into very different work um, allocations of time in court and back in chambers. Would, Would it be fair to say... A public law practice will take you into the High Court, perhaps the Administrative Court, doing judicial review and that sort of case quite regularly. A commercial practice could mean that you spend much of your time sitting at your desk preparing for a big arbitration or a big trial, but actually spend less time in court. Yes, overall I think that would be very accurate. Um, Public law cases, judicial reviews, don't often run more than one or two days in length, and therefore the turnover in work is much quicker and you have more opportunity for advocacy at a much earlier stage. With commercial cases, the long commercial cases, you will end up perhaps working for many months, um, possibly going to court for odd uh, applications for directions, but working mainly on witness statements, um, all sorts of schedules, and um, only proceeding to a hearing at the end of a very long time of preparation. Uh, You would spend a certain amount of time with clients, helping with witness statements and actually going to court at the end of a very long process where a court hearing could take anything from maybe only five days to several months. You mentioned EU law, Julia, as being one of the specialisms at at Blackstones. Can you go through a sort of similar exercise, describe what uh, an EU specialist's life is going to look like? There are those who operate purely or want to operate purely in attending the ECJ, the European Court of Justice. There is also a different aspect to Euro law, which is the European Court of Human Rights, and the two are different. And one is in Strasbourg, one is in Luxembourg, um, and they are uh, different types of case. EU cases uh, in the ECJ uh, tend to be, for us anyway, more commercial, possibly regulatory in nature, the human rights cases are much more varied. In each case, the actual court appearances are very short and the preparatory work is all to do with seeing the clients, doing the written cases. Um, The actual time in court may be only half an hour per, um, per party. So is it important for our listeners then to have a think about themselves to think about, well, what do I think I would like my Monday to Friday, well, Monday to Sunday possibly might be more (laughs) realistic, to look like? Yes, it is very important because you have to understand where you are coming from as an individual and what makes you comfortable. Uh, Some people come to the bar because they love advocacy. That's something you have to know that you can at least enjoy. It can be very scary, and many people are, even brilliant advocates, are still apprehensive before they go to court at the beginning of a trial. Um, But you have to know that you like it. Well, this is what I was going to ask you, because you did mention that for some practice areas, barristers, in fact, have little time in court. Does that mean that if you are not feeling that buzz, you 
could still be a successful and fulfilled person at the bar, but you should probably be looking at different areas, or do you do you caution against that? No, I don't caution against it. I think you just have to know yourself. And if you want to do something which is far less advocacy-based, it's more likely to therefore be a written practice. There are areas which will permit you to do that. And indeed, um, it's quite possible in certain chambers like ours to mix and match a bit. One thing that our listeners may have heard of are something called the legal directories. Can you tell our listeners what those directories are and how they might be of use to them? There are a number of legal directories which are independent and um, provide a review through a lot of research of barristers' chambers and individual practitioners at the bar. The principal ones are Chambers and Partners and the Legal 500, and they provide uh, practice area ratings of sets and also solicitors' firms, uh, as well as ratings of individuals practising in those areas. For a set like Blackstone Chambers, which has a very broad range within its uh, practice umbrella, I think we appear in about 18 or 19 of the practice areas, it's possible to build up a very good picture based on third-party research, it's not just what we say about ourselves, which gives you an idea of the range of practice that can be found in each chambers. And it will refer to cases that are done in chambers, and it will refer to individuals who are leading practitioners, both at the senior end of the bar, so Queen's Council, or uh, up-and-coming juniors who are working their way through the ranks. There are some areas of practice that are very narrow niches. I'm thinking of something like sports law, public international law, um, even things like equine law um, Mm. or ecclesiastical law are out there. If somebody is interested in an area like that, it's very rare that there will be a chambers that just does that one specialism. Do you have any advice for someone who has that niche area of interest? I think if you're coming into the bar, one shouldn't assume that um, you're going to end up where you think you're going to start. And very often people come with the idea that they want to do a particular area because they've read a case about it, they're interested in equine law, as you mentioned, or something like that. But the reality is that when you get into practice, there are so many other areas which you find quite by happenstance that you enjoy that you shouldn't restrict yourself at the beginning. Therefore, an interest in a particular area is more a hook to hang your search on rather than uh, the ultimate goal. And I suppose the best advice for listeners is to keep an open mind. Yes. If you're choosing areas to go into, you have to go back to the lifestyle choice more than anything else. Um, And if you do want the non-court appearance style of of practice, then at one extreme maybe the tax bar is the answer because you would go to court probably not very often there. Uh, But if you want everyday action, you might either do... Um, criminal practice or some of the common law sets do in court are in court most days or you might she also go for the employment practice where you do do a lot more employment tribunal work um, and that gives you the opportunity to do a lot of cross-examination which is very thrilling and a way of accessing cross-examination perhaps sooner than you might if you were solely practicing in the commercial field yes it's great fun (laughs) 
Julia Horner, thank you very much for coming on the Pupillage Podcast. Elaine Banton, you are an employment and discrimination practitioner. Could you explain to our listeners a little bit about what, what your practice is like? And I'm thinking about what sort of clients you represent, what your average week looks like, how much you might be in court, that sort of thing. Yes. Well, I've always thought that employment law is a bit of a hybrid between general civil law and criminal law in the sense that there is paperwork involved, but there's also trials involved and not all the hearings settle. So there's real opportunity to actually get into court and see trials through to the end, which I do very much enjoy. So generally speaking, I represent both sides. I represent employees and employers. And my clients are quite high level. So if they're employees, they're likely to be individuals who are very senior, who might be um, managers or directors, for example, or they might be a high-flying executive at a bank or a senior partner who's a solicitor, something like that. If they're an employer, they may be a large-scale employer. It could be from a local authority or it could be a multinational organisation or a small to medium-sized employer. So that varies very much. And that's one of the aspects that I really enjoy, is that there's a wide variety of different clients that you're meeting and interacting with. Um, So one day you might be working with a senior consultant in a hospital, and then you might be working with a very senior architect. And that's the sort of practice that I have at the moment. And generally speaking, I am in court every week, So that's not to say I have a full trial every week, but I may be doing interlocutory applications or case management hearings one week, and then a following week I may be starting a two-week hearing or a three-week hearing. So there is uh, flexibility in what I do, but the overriding thing for me is that I am regularly appearing in court uh, doing cases which I enjoy. And another aspect of my practice is that I've always done quite a lot of appellate work. I started off quite at a junior age um, in my career and representing um, a class action which ended up in the Court of Appeal, which I won, and very much spurred me on in doing appellate work, which I really enjoy. So that's another aspect in my career, and that does keep me quite busy. So it sounds like that you have a, a very appealing blend of trial work, that's to say witness handling, on the one hand, and then submissions advocacy with your appellate work, as well as... a a decent amount of paperwork as well. Yes, that's absolutely right. I think that uh, summarises it perfectly. And that's what I really enjoy, is that there is a combination of um, cut and thrust of trial work and then more sort of submissions and legal argument doing the appellate work. And the other addition to that is the writing, which I... It's something that I enjoy and have developed, so I pursue that generally um, in terms of writing articles and also contributing to books. What about travel? Because you mentioned that as, as being something that our listeners might want to consider when thinking about different practice areas. What, what does travel look like for you? 
Yes, for me, I tend to practice in London and the southeast. Having said that, I do trials in Manchester and further afield. So it really just depends on the particular case that I'm doing and what it involves. Um, and so for me, I'm able to work around my family commitments and still travel and do cases. For others, that may not work at all. It just depends on your particular circumstances. But I think you do have to make a decision as to whether or not it works for you to every day be travelling on a train and working on a train or, or not. But I think it works for many individuals. Elaine Banton, thank you very much indeed. Master Wilmot Smith spoke to us about the inns in an earlier episode. We invited him back to talk to us about his commercial and construction practice, and in particular about arbitration. But first, we asked for his help with a tricky definition. In the legal world, Master Wilmot Smith, what's a brickie? Uh, somebody who specialises in, a barrister who specialises in construction, or a solicitor who specialises in construction. And it's uh, a suitably derogatory term to suggest that all we do is count bricks, which is <laughs> delightful. <laughs> uh, Master Wilmot Smith, you practice in construction law and also some commercial and engineering litigation and arbitration. Could you tell our listeners what does that practice area entail? Well, it's like any other civil case. There is somebody, A, has a claim against B. So it might be a builder against a householder to be paid, or it might be a, um, an owner of a building against a builder because the building is defective, or many permutations. And they have to prove their case. And given that most construction projects are immensely time-consuming, uh, and involve lots and lots of attention to detail, so do the cases. But in essence, it's no different from any contract or tort case. It just involves a structure. That's all, really. And is it right to say commercial law is a sort of umbrella term that encompasses construction, some chancery law, all sorts of other areas of law that kind of come within that broad umbrella? By and large, the... A lot of commercial people will say that if you have a dispute over the construction of a ship, that's commercial, but if you have a dispute over the construction of a building, that's construction. Uh, a slightly absurd distinction. Uh, you also have people who um, deal with international trade, for example. So you will have, if you look at the old books, people getting immensely exercised over the soya beans sweated in the Suez Canal and who's responsible for them. So construction is part of commercial life because it involves the expenditure of money on an outcome. I heard recently from a construction barrister that one of the features that she loved about her job was that she got to find out about some really, really interesting problems, like, for example, how to build a subway system in a desert. Yes. What, what sort of things attract you to this field of work or do you enjoy about this field of work? Well I do enjoy that I mean the vanity part involves looking at various buildings or structures around the United Kingdom and abroad the Hong Kong and Shanghai building in Hong Kong for example the Stonecutters Bridge there or over here the GMEX Centre and the Dartford Tunnel the second Dartford Tunnel I was a bit young for the first one and they are they're fascinating because if you are actually building something big like 
the Channel Tunnel or like the Dartford Tunnel. There are huge stages to go through and lots and lots of people involved doing immensely interesting things and you get to unpick them and hopefully understand them or at least if you have the vanity I have you think you do. (laughs) What does the day-to-day life of a commercial or construction law barrister look like? There are two types of day. The first is if you're in court when you will uh, meet your client in the morning go over to court and argue the case, have anxious conferences after the day in which you decide what went right and what went wrong, what needs to be done. Construction cases are normally fairly lengthy. I've just come off doing a six-week case, for example. So there's immense input in that. That's one type of day. The other type of day is a normal day that anybody has. You go to the office and you do the work that comes up uh, from email and likewise, writing advices and other such things. Uh, Both types of day will occasionally involve walking around and gossiping. (laughs) It's funny, that seems to be common across a lot of practice areas. Is it fair to say that that the the court days tend to be fewer than the days preparing for court, that you will often spend a lot of time preparing for a case? I have a rule of thumb. In a normal case, for every day the case runs, you have a day out of court in advance preparing it. Uh, That is a rule of thumb. Uh, Usually... If it, if it moves, it's going to move to a more complicated one that will be two days out of court for everyone in court. Very, very occasionally, if it, is a, um, if it is a short case of a week or under, then you may be able to get away with um, something slightly less than one for one. But that's broadly speaking it um, in terms of preparation time. And, of course, when you're in preparation time, uh, preparation mode and preparation time and preparation mode, then you... Well, certainly in my case, I turn into an impossible person who is anxious and I exclude everything else from my life while that's going on. Is there a lot of paperwork as well? Yes, but if you call it paperwork now, it's a bit of a misnomer. I did the first paperless trial in the TCC, but that involved my notes for my opening and running the case being about, my handwritten notes being about six, five to six inches in, in, in width, the, 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 my little bundle of notes. Uh, now it's much more difficult because all the paper is reduced to a terabyte or something similar on a hard disk. And the, to- the, the means of recall of the, all that, those files is immensely difficult and different from... Um, back in the old days, you'd have a bunch of files across a across a wall and you'd just look for your pink sticky there and that would be that, that you'd know that was the one you were looking for but if, of course it's all in a all in a, in a hard disk that's slightly different I'm still trying to master that. Can you tell us Master Wilmot Smith what's the difference between arbitration and litigation? Some people will say there isn't any difference uh, and, and some people will say that because uh, the processes are often very similar The fundamental difference is that an arbitration involves a a private hearing in private. That's a bit of a misnomer, but it's a two privates matter. Uh, 
whereby the tribunal is paid as well as the advocates privately. Uh, what it produces is an arbitration award which is then enforced in the courts. The procedures of arbitration are in the hands of the arbitrator or whatever uh, arbitral institution um, governs the arbitration. If you go to court, you're governed by the rules of court and everything is in public. Arbitration normally involves private commercial disputes because they need an arbitration clause uh, in the contract in order for an arbitration to be enforceable. So you won't hear public law matters in arbitration, but you'll hear private law matters, for example, over whether X or Y has been paid enough for building whatever structure they build. So it's a private law thing. Most arbitrators, uh, arbitration is a private law thing, most arbitrators replicate court procedures in some respect. But international arbitration in England, they tend to uh, not use too much common law procedure so far as disclosure is concerned, for example. But most will allow cross-examination. It's a bit of it's a bit of a, a a mix and match, if you like. So as far as far as the practitioner is concerned, it's the same sorts of skills. It's exactly you... the same sorts of skills, but applied differently in a different forum. Do you have any final advice for students who are attracted to a commercial practice? Uh, the thing is, you can't predict where you're going to go. I was a pupil to Simon Brown, who was then Treasury Devil, who did public law, uh, and. I was then shunted because of circumstance to a specialist construction set where I did a third six months. I knew nothing about construction law. I think the thing you're going to have to do is just let whatever takes you, takes you to where you go, rather than be too focused on the immediate because time and chance is very unpredictable. Thank you ever so much. Grand. Pleasure. Thank you very much. We spoke to Catherine McGahey QC earlier in the series to talk about many pupillages. She introduced herself as doing public law and we brought her back to ask about her public law practice and a particular passion that she has for animals. Catherine, can you tell us um, why you chose a public law practice? It really came on me by accident. I started at the bar doing commercial law, at which I was a complete disaster. Uh, moved to another set and did criminal fraud and then because I was used to document heavy cases was offered um, the chance to be junior counsel to the Bloody Sunday inquiry. That was supposed to last for two years, it lasted for ten, by which time I was unemployable to do anything other than public law. Um, I was hugely lucky to be offered a place in a set of Ian Burnett QC, now the Lord Chief Justice, which specialised in public law and I went there and, to start with, really, did all the work that other people didn't want to do. And why might um, people choose a public law practice? It is fascinating. You get to do cases that are in the news every day. Depending on your area of work, you will work on cases that are politically charged. You have an opportunity to see how government works, and to a, a limited extent, I suppose... Not to influence it, but at least watch its development. Catherine, in terms of the working week, what does it look like? How often are you in court? Do you have to travel? That sort of thing. I would expect to be in court every week. 
The amount of time I spend in court varies enormously according to the case that I'm doing. So I might be doing a public inquiry which would involve me being in court every day for three, four weeks or even more. In the past, I've done a public inquiry that required me to live in Northern Ireland for three years and then in Jersey for six months on a different one, coming home only at weekends. On other weeks, I may be in court just once or twice doing much shorter cases. How much travel does your practice entail? Again, that varies hugely. The majority of my work is in London, but public inquiries and inquests can take place anywhere. They are usually held in the place with which the subject matter has the greatest connection. So I've just come back from a week in North Wales and I have more time in the administrative court in Cardiff in the, ne- in the next month. Catherine, one of the reasons that we were very keen to get you on the podcast is because you have a passion that you have turned into a practice. And I wonder if you could tell our listeners a little bit about it. I do. Although I work very long hours during the week, I try as hard as I possibly can not to work at weekends. And at weekends, I devote virtually all my time to my pack of rescued animals. I have over 100 animals of different sorts, varying from a cow to tortoises. (laughs) And while they are my, my weekend hobby, I've also been able to develop a practice in animal work. So I do a lot of work involving death row dog cases. Those are dogs facing destruction orders, usually because of the way they look. If a dog looks like a pit bull terrier, it faces automatic destruction regardless of how lovely a dog it is, unless the owner can obtain exemption. So I've been lucky enough to be involved in two of the leading cases in the interpretation of the Dangerous Dogs Act, which have widened the definitions of essentially of exemption to allow more dogs to be saved. And at the moment, I'm also representing Geronimo the alpaca, whom DEFRA have sentenced to death because he has tested positive for bovine tuberculosis. And we're trying to persuade the court that the test is unreliable and that actually Geronimo is healthy and should be allowed to live. I'm so delighted to hear about this because it's so wonderful to see how you have carved out this incredible niche practice from something that is obviously very close to your heart. Is that something that you would encourage our listeners to do when they come to their own careers? Oh, definitely. Because... What is most important, surely, about any career is that you enjoy what you're doing. And if you can combine your your passions outside the law with what you're doing in the law, that can only be a great thing to do. Catherine McGahey, thank you very much indeed. We spoke to Bennett Brandreth QC for another episode, and we're pleased to speak to him again. Could you tell us a little bit about your practice as an intellectual property barrister? Shall we start by explaining what is intellectual property? So intellectual property rights are the area of the law that protects ideas and innovation. Uh, The most famous uh, intellectual property right would be copyright, which protects uh, the uh, expression of ideas in uh, literature, music, uh, art, and so on and so forth. And uh, 
After that, probably uh, we have patents, which are the monopolies that are given over uh, technical inventions. And then we have the protection for brands, so we have trademarks. Uh, But uh, the scope of intellectual property rights is huge. We've got design rights, we've got database rights, we've got privacy rights, we've got confidential information, which is technically not intellectual property, and so on and so forth. but it's, it's basically about how do you protect ideas, and that's the basis for our area of the law. So could you tell our listeners a little bit about who your clients are? So uh, in terms of professional clients, we obviously have um, solicitors' firms, and they range in size from big city firms uh, all the way down to uh, smaller firms, indeed, uh, you know, sometimes uh, one-man operations, depending on the nature of the work in question. Uh, in terms of lay clients, uh, it's again very varied. We have uh, at one end major multinational pharmaceutical companies with turnovers in the uh, billions of uh, dollars a year. And on the other hand, we have uh, new startups who are trying to protect their brand as they get going with a, a new product. And they may be very small uh, enterprises at all. And that's reflected in the fact that actually intellectual property rights although usually litigated in the High Court, they also have a special patent court, uh, the Intellectual Property Enterprise Court, which is specifically designed for small and medium-sized enterprises, has its own special civil uh, procedure and operates costs on a scale, uh, deliberately intended to allow even small-scale enterprises to, to fight to protect their intellectual property. Brilliant. And what does a typical week look like for an intellectual property barrister? I don't know that there is a very typical week in the sense that uh, usually we're either uh, preparing for uh, a big trial, uh, in which case uh, it will be in chambers, uh, a lot of paperwork, uh, usually working um, alone or with a junior or a couple of juniors and then with a a solicitor team. Uh, Or we're in court Uh, trials tend to last something like a week to two weeks unless you're in um, the intellectual property enterprise court in which case they're only a couple of days or sometimes we act in the IPO the intellectual property office uh, or or indeed um, I've done quite a lot of work on appeals from the European intellectual property office uh, in the courts in Luxembourg and they, they usually those hearings take about half a day so if we're not preparing for one of those hearings or in one of those hearings then um there's a lot of advisory work, there's a lot of preparing uh, the course of the uh, litigation, and um, I would say as a, an area of practice, it tends to be quite uh, paper-based, it tends to be quite um, office-based rather than, as it were, uh, in the courtroom most of the time, because the value of the litigation, that which actually fights, tends to be, relatively speaking, high. Uh, they can afford to have a... Uh, long run-up to the trial, they can afford to focus you on that trial. And as a consequence, we don't tend to have trials um, very often uh, compared to, say, crime, for example, or indeed some areas of the, of the common law bar. One of my early experiences of failure in my legal career, of which there are many examples, um, was that I had an English literature degree and I thought that intellectual property was all about plagiarism. I had I was coming through at about the time of the J.K. Rowling litigation and I thought, brilliant, this is going to be all about spending time with authors. And I put a a load of applications in for mini-pupillages, which I have no doubt revealed my total ignorance about just how scientific the intellectual property bar is. And I was flooded with rejection letters. Um, I wonder if if it's true that you need to have a scientific background if you want to be an intellectual property barrister. 
The answer to that is no. You don't need to have a science background. Indeed, I'm, I'm proof of that. I don't have a science background. I did philosophy at university. And indeed, in my chambers, there are several very successful uh, barristers who also didn't have an intellectual, excuse me, a, a technical or a science background. But we are definitely the exception rather than the rule. And I certainly would say that there is a huge advantage in having a technical background. Uh, certainly, if you're going to be doing patent cases in a particular area of the sciences, it gives you a, 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 a leg up, a, a, a head start on getting into the technical subject matter. Uh, that is true, I think, probably of, of what I would describe as the hard IP sets. So those are the ones that are at least offering to do technical work, patent work, or indeed contractual disputes with a technical aspect to it, and computer contract disputes and so on and so forth. Bennett, can I just interrupt you for a yeah. second to so that I'm sure that I understand what you mean by technical? Yes. What, what, I, I don't understand what you mean. What, sure. what is it? Sure. Well, really, I mean, really what we're talking about is patent disputes, where the underlying subject matter in, will involve at some point explaining what the... The, the science, the technical aspect of the patent that's being protected uh, involves. Can you give me an example of a patent? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so they can be for uh, a whole range of different kinds of invention. I did a, a patent case that was about a, a buprenorphine patch, a painkilling patch that went uh, on the skin directly and delivered uh, a dose of an opioid analgesic. I did a case about uh, cryptographic architecture for use in... Um, uh, set-top boxes. I did a case about uh, CPAP masks, which are um, the masks that people with sleep apnea wear at night. But I also did a, a case that was about the, uh, effectively about the lever on a kind of trolley that um, disabled people would use to enable them to, to be moved out of bed or to, to use the, the loo or something along those lines. So the range of, of, of technical information can be um, uh, from simple mechanical patents. I did one about a, a, a fryer, you know, a, a low-fat fryer, uh, all, all the way up to very complicated uh, uh, pharmaceutical patents. Uh, and there are people in my chambers who have PhDs in uh, those sorts of areas, and they do a lot of that sort of work. Or indeed about uh, mobile phones and how they operate. And so they have people in my chambers who have uh, those uh, backgrounds in kind of computer science and so on and so forth. And so that the scientific level can be extraordinarily high indeed, uh, or it can be very simple. And those are the sorts of cases I get. <laughs> but, but as a consequence of, of being used to dealing with those sorts of technical matters as in the subject matter is ultimately technical. Yes, uh, as a consequence, there are also obviously disputes that are really contractual disputes which have a very strong technical aspect to it. So the issue is, did you deliver a, a device that met the technical requirements of this contract? Is this computer software... Uh, meeting the requirements of the uh, of the services contract and so on and so forth. And for that reason, although technically not about IP but about straight contractual disputes, hard IP sets often do a lot of that kind of work as well. So for our listeners who think this all sounds really quite exciting and like it, you meet with inventors the whole time, mm. can you explain what, in your opinion, are the appealing parts of a job as a, an IP barrister? Well, one of the very interesting aspects is the chance to meet with and to discuss all of these very varied scientific and, and technical ideas. You can be uh, 
deep diving into the details of, uh, you know, biologic pharmaceutical one week uh, and the next week you're learning about how uh, cheese is made and whether or not this new machine makes cheese more effectively than anybody else's. So that variety and that technical aspect of things can be very interesting and very exciting from that perspective. And the need to do that translating from English to English, to get over to a judge uh, these complicated ideas and to move them forward, I think is is a very interesting aspect of, of the work. The other thing I would say that is very interesting about IP is that um, I don't know where it comes from. Is there a creativity that comes out of the nature of, of the subject matter? Is there uh, a value to speed and to uh, interim activities within the litigation in IP by virtue of the of the nature of uh, the underlying subject matter. I don't know what exactly it is, probably a combination of matters, but there is a lot of room for innovation in the law within IP. And in fact, you notice that when you look at a lot of the uh, cases. So uh, the cases about when you uh, get an injunction, American cyanamide, IP case, uh, whether or not you can obtain uh, disclosure in order to identify a wrongdoer, Norwich Pharmacal, IP case. Uh, you know, it's astonishing actually that how often it turns out that it was in an IP case that the boundaries of the law were being pushed. And in fact, I was lucky enough uh, to be the junior in a case where that happened very recently, where uh, we obtained a blocking injunction against uh, an internet service provider in respect of a, of a trademark infringement. But in the course of that, got all the way up to the Supreme Court, and in the course of the Supreme Court judgment, ended up effectively the court probably would say changing the law not one iota but in practice actually making it clear that the powers of the court were very wide and again that sense in which you know there is both the money and the interest in trying new stuff and being innovative that's another exciting aspect of IP. One thing that I ought to clarify is that we're always talking here about hard IP. Now there is a what's referred to as soft IP and all that that means is it doesn't have the technical side so here we're talking about trademarks we're talking about the kind of copyright that you were discussing earlier in books and music and uh, designs to a certain extent brands protection and so on and so forth and with those there's actually a much wider set of chambers that profess to do that there's a much wider opportunity to do that alongside other areas of the law and there's less of an emphasis on having a technical background so if you're worried that you don't have the technical chops to necessarily push yourself to the front of one of those hard IP sets, don't give up on IP as an idea. There are plenty of places that do it. Because it's considered to be intellectually demanding and innovative and creative, whether that's true or not, but the impression that it is, there are a lot of sets that will profess that they do IP by which they mean soft IP, by which they mean one of their barristers once did a case that had a little <laughs> bit of IP in it. And therefore, I do think that if you're really interested in doing IP all the time, you need to be a little bit careful in your research about the chambers to filter out the ones where they've just stuck it on their we do this list because it looks good to have that coverage rather than being a set of chambers that's really focused on that. And I have to tell you, it is a very niche area. There are really only three, four maybe big sets that do hard IP and soft IP, a few extras that do soft IP, but a lot of people who claim to do it, and as I say, what they really mean is they would do it if you paid them enough money. 
So, so anyone thinking about this area of law ought to look in the legal directories to see which are the real leading IP chambers and interrogate websites, um, chambers' websites, to see that not only do they put it as a practice area that they practice, but to look at individual barristers and see do they have IP cases on their CVs, how many members of chambers are saying that they do IP and what sort of cases have they actually done. Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Um, and I think... Uh, it's not to say that you can't have an IP practice outside of a specialist IP set. It's one of the nice things about being self-employed at the bar. You can try and take your career whichever direction you want to. But it's definitely an advantage to have the mentoring opportunities that being in a, a set uh, like that has. And I guess another aspect, nice aspect, pleasant aspect of the IP bar is that all the IP sets are still quite small. They're like the old style sets used to be. 15, 20 people, more or less at the most. And so there's a very collegiate, uh, clubbable, if that's still an acceptable way of describing things, uh, attitude amongst the barristers within them, a very supportive attitude, I would say. Even in interset rivalry, there's still a kind of uh, fellowship uh, that I think is very supportive and very pleasant in what is undoubtedly a stressful career if you're not careful. Bennett Brandreth QC, do you have any final words of advice or encouragement for our listeners? Well, my words of encouragement are uh, that being at the bar is still one of the best jobs that you can have and uh, intellectually stimulating, uh, occasionally financially rewarding, uh, but also one in which you feel that your own efforts are making a, a real difference there and then to your client's um, life. And that's great. Uh, and I would say that if that's something that's attractive to you, then it's worth uh, pushing on and that I am unaware of any barrister who hasn't had some form of setback at some point in their careers. And the reason that they are good barristers is that they fell down seven times but got up eight. Bennett Brandreth QC, thank you ever so much for talking to the Pupilage podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Pupilage podcast with us, Beatrice Collier and Georgina Wolfe. Brought to you by Middle Temple. Production support and music by Alex Dopirala. Huge thanks to the wonderful team here at Middle Temple. James Rogerson for helping us with the logistics. Darren Latty for coffees and pastries. And Colin Davidson for his enthusiasm, encouragement and awe-inspiring little black book. Please check out the show notes for more on our guests, links to sources of information and a glossary of terms used in each episode. We'd also like to thank all our clerks and our senior clerk, Mark Waller, who've not disowned us for sneaking off down the road to Middle Temple for recording sessions. If you have questions you would like answered in future episodes or want to give us some feedback, please email us at pupillagepodcast at gmail.com. And if you've enjoyed the episode, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other people to find the podcast.